Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Mary Kolarudis, CEO of Creative Healthcare Management and the Knowledge Center board member for part one of their discussion on the impact attachment theory can have on healthcare. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. This is Karen Buckwalter here with you today. And today we are going to be interviewing Mary Kolarudis, who is actually, uh, her background is in nursing, but she has written a great deal about relationship-based care, even the impact of neuroscience and connection in terms of patient health care, patient improvement from illnesses. She has a number of award-winning books, including Reigniting the Spirit of Caring, which is an overall program that she's been leading in healthcare systems worldwide. She has a series of books called The Relationship-Based Care Series of Books and Workshops. And... She also has another uh, whole series called See Me as a Person, which is a book and workshop co-created with psychologist Michael Trout. So I am really, really looking forward to interviewing Mary today. In addition to her writing and her nursing background, she's also the CEO of Creative Healthcare management, which is the the company she leads and works for. So it's really going to be a treat to be speaking with Mary today. I know you're all going to enjoy it. Well, good morning, Mary. I am so happy that you agreed to be on my podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So before we started, I shared a little bit about your background and your company and your books. Um, But I'd like to hear a little bit more at a personal level as opposed to your official bio, like how you got interested in relationship-based care and all of these concepts that you've been writing about. Um, On one hand, I feel like it's kind of a silly question because, like, of course, if you're in nursing, you would care about that, I guess. But, I mean, you're certainly taking it to the level, a much higher level than what we just would ordinarily think about. So I want to hear about that first, how, how you got involved in all of this. You know, in thinking about that, that's always such a hard thing to be clear about. I think... Uh, I'm going to quote Michael now. That's called coherent narratives. Yes. <laughs> coherent narrative about how did I end up here? Yes. Been in the field for over 40 years, and I didn't. Um, in contrast to some of my colleagues, I didn't always want to be a nurse. It was like actually one of the last things in my mind. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> I stumbled into it because of life issues and so forth. Anyway, a little bit older. I already had a child when I decided to enter nursing school. I'd had some, uh, some significant influence I've discovered from my then sister-in-law, who was a night supervisor in nursing in a hospital in Minneapolis. 
And she and I had many conversations. I was like 20, 21 at this time, around the kitchen table over a glass of wine about some of her experiences as a night supervisor. And I've only realized as I've thought about this in later years, that that was a fundamental core influence on how I think about the field and how I envisioned what it meant to care for people and to be a nurse in that she talked about people in crisis in the night shift in a city hospital she, and the night supervisor. She was often called to air crisis, families in crisis, staff struggling with issues around care, and she would tell stories about intervening and how she intervened. But it wasn't even the content of the story as much as her persona. She was such a kind and compassionate person. Mm. And when she would tell these stories, some of them funny, some of them tragic, it was always with the deepest regard for the human beings involved. And again, she didn't say you need to have deep regard for the human beings involved. <laughs> That never was said. It was just simply the way she described her experiences that I always understood that her, her focus was holding these people in care. And by the way, as I interacted with her as a young person, um, not sure where I was going to go, I always felt that way. I felt like she was really interested in me, that she was interested in sharing life with me in a way that I realized later was quite therapeutic uh, because of what I needed at that time. So I think she is inside of me. I think mm. that's, that's a very long answer to the kind of the prefacing. When I did enter nursing school, I did it because it was pragmatic, again, because of life circumstances, and I was unprepared to fall completely in love. I saw almost immediately that it was more than kind of the images people have of what nursing is about, that it was about being privileged to stand with people at times of high vulnerability and be of some help, and that that had endless possibilities, what that could look like. So um, it was, um, it was a, I almost fell off the cliff. It was life-altering. And I will say after 40 years, that hasn't changed. Then one third thing I'll just say in terms of early influence. Yes. I, I started out in an oncology unit and then went fairly quickly into OB. I always, that's where I wanted to be, working with mothers in labor. And um, I had quite a bit of freedom in my first organization, a lot of autonomy in the way I worked and cared for mothers and uh, found high satisfaction and high impact on their their labor experience because of the freedom. Mm. I moved from that organization to one in which bureaucracy prevailed and my practice became more limited. There were uh, bureaucratic barriers that were put in the way. And I realized so very young, I'm like in my late 20s at this time, that providing humane and compassionate care, relationship-based care, as I was developed as a nurse to do was going to be challenging within the context of institutions mm. because, of, because of some of the realities of institutions. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that influenced as I continued to advance my career and went into administrative roles in education and management and 
so forth. My, my mission expanded from what can I do for this patient right here, right now, to what can I do to improve the ability of all caregivers to connect with their patients mm. and have systems and uh, bureaucratic processes run interference to that or leaders who didn't envision the importance of connected care. So that's, that's kind of where it went. So I had a lot of different roles and in 2000 ended up at Creative Healthcare Management where uh, the work I'd been doing as a, a leader in the field, the founder of the company knew me as I worked in a hospital and her mission really coincided and that's how I joined in 2000. And then we began to evolve the work that is now called relationship-based care. Mm. You know, so Mary, it's so interesting when you're talking about this, it almost conjures up this feeling for me that nursing is like a humanitarian effort. And, you know, like we think of that, like that would be, you know, uh, nurses without borders or the Peace Corps, but it's like, you're, you're talking about it. Like, no, just like right here in our world around us. Uh, right. right? Yes. You know, uh, Pope Francis did a presentation to the Italian Nurses Association that I came across the other day. And he, he his, his language, of course, is beautiful. But one of the things he said about nurses is that they are experts in humanity. Mm. And I, that really captured, I think, what I've been trying to get across in a lot of words in many ways over time. But nursing at its finest is the diagnosis and treatment of the human response to their illness, to, to uh, trauma, to crisis. And so at our finest, we are not only looking at what are the technical interventions that we need to be absolutely masterful at, skilled in, but we need to be equally masterful at understanding the human condition and what it takes to create a connection and comfort and alleviate the emotional suffering as well as the, the physical suffering in the moment in bureaucratic settings, organizational settings, which have become increasingly more fast-paced and pressure and acute. So, yeah. it, you know, it's a really, it's a big role and often, I think, underestimated. Well, I remember um, at one point uh, talking with you and Michael about See Me as a Person before it was before it was published, and you know, in, in thinking about this podcast is focused on attachment and attachment theory, and both of you talking about you, know, you really just as vulnerable as an infant, as a baby, when you're a patient, <laughs> you know, depending on the severity of the illness and what is happening, and you're so fully dependent on the care of those around you. And that, that always really stuck with me when you guys said that in terms, because in, initially I thought, okay, like how is this going to fit, you know, attachment, and, you know, because I don't, I, I don't know healthcare and nursing in, in the way that you do. And then when you said that, that made so much sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. In those moments, um, and it does vary in terms of 
of the condition is, but I would suggest that even in the more minor moments, when we're concerned about our own health and our own well-being, and we are putting ourselves in the hands of healthcare professionals, in that moment, you know, we have a dependency that is akin to a dependency of, a, of an infant. Um, now we can walk out, we can take charge, again, depending. So it's not, it's metaphoric in some ways, and yet it's also very, very real. Um, I, I've listened to a story about a psychologist who was in the intensive care unit. And she describes, she was in there for three months after a horrific accident. And she was not able to move. She was not able to speak. But she was completely aware of what was going on around her. And as she describes people who came in and did the technical work as efficiently, effectively, and then would just leave the room, how isolated she felt. She said there was one nurse who seemed to know she was in there mm. and would come and connect with her and talk oh. to her about the day. Touch her, she said, in ways that didn't hurt, that was just touched to comfort. So the, uh, the, the, the demonstration of human connection and human attunement, she said, saved her life. And, uh, because I think the isolation and the despair that went with that, she wonders if she would have given up. Um, and so having a consciousness and a knowledge base and awareness of the humanity of each person, regardless of whether they can attune back, <laughs> attuning to the humanity, whether you get a response from that person or not, is a critical foundational knowledge. Um, and to not ever lose sight of her. She said what she's fretted with is while her physical needs were being attended to, it was the emotional needs that were creating the, the, the angst and anxiety with him. Mm. And that that needed to be equally attended to. And I, I'll just say one other thing about that. I think that in... Um, in the realm of healthcare, there's kind of been the assumption that if you go into medicine or nursing or the, one of the caring therapies, it's because you care about people. So do that, and then we'll train you with all the technical skills. And I think what we're learning is that we need to be equally developed and trained in how to recognize emotional distress, how to recognize a connectivity that works versus that which doesn't, and actually do development and training for people on the emotional, um, psychological realm as heavily as we do on the physiological realm. That's a part of your work that you have made so practical that, you know, I was, did a workshop yesterday on working with caregivers and I, I talked about your book. I talked about wondering, following and holding. And even with, um, psychotherapists, um, you know, a, a very person I respect very much afterwards said, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm wondering enough with people, <laughs> you know, so even in our, you know, this is what we're even supposed to do. It's, it's not medicine. It's, it's psychotherapy. It was some of the questions and wondering and, and the curiosity that you talk about in your work, uh, 
was just even so helpful to to be reminded of for those of us who who are doing you know clinical social work practice and psychotherapy you know you've just you've really named what michael and i were hoping to accomplish in taking a human connection, attunement. I mean, we could just say attune. Yes. And all of the rest of this happens. But what we know is in the press of moments and in the reality of day-to-day life, we can fail to wonder. We can fail to follow. And unless we have a way to deconstruct and look at it, we may just wonder, what went wrong? What happened there? That didn't work. And I think it gives us a mindful framework to really reflect on it to continually evolve our own abilities as well as to teach others and to deconstruct it in a way that people can get their heads and hearts and arms around and um, continually improve. Yes, and I think uh, medicine's a more of a hard science in some ways you know we're talking about ways it's not but i think because of that your style of writing about that is very specific and clear um and sometimes we're too vague (laughs) in how we're writing about it as therapists so i i was just appreciating that yesterday when i was talking about some of your concepts so i wonder um you know as you started thinking about this in deeper ways as you were in the nursing profession where you've shared a little bit, you know, I've some things that concerned me were in this other setting. I, I wasn't being able to do what I thought I needed to do, but you know, how did the whole concept come together? You're seeing these things, you're seeing, you know, I'm encouraged by this. I'm disappointed or not feeling good about this. And then how does all that come into this funnel of, of your books and, and, and how you've distilled it down? Well, I would say there was some synchrony in, in how it ended up this way. Um, in the 90s, I was in a, a large organization in Minneapolis, and I was um, leading what was called clinical and professional practice. And I had a wonderful nurse executive who came to me and said, I'd like you to develop a program that strengthens professional awareness and consciousness about the human aspect of care. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what I said. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so I, I organized... I was thinking, wow, she really asked the right person. <laughs> I was, you know, thrilled. We'd been in a real retrenchment stage where creativity was not really being encouraged. So this was a a milestone event in my career. This was in 1990. So I organized a group of people, uh, and we did about a year-long development of a curriculum that would get at um, strengthening our awareness of our shared humanity and the humanity in our care. It was built on some of the uh, principles of Peter Senge's five disciplines. Mm -hmm. The mental model we use. Okay. The idea of personal mastery being at the core. In other words, we each can be authors and leaders in our own lives. So that was kind of the spirit. The curriculum was developed around three key relationships. Our relationship with ourself which includes self-care and self-awareness, our relationships with our teams, and our relationships with the patients. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was unique about the curriculum was that it was three days in length. The retreat was to be three days in length. And I asked for that time 
that is hard in, in uh, cost-constrained hospitals, but she did not blink an eye. She said, I, we cannot afford not to do it. She said, if you're talking about creating greater consciousness and awareness, we need to create the space. And that's well, why. Who is this person? Can we like. Her name is Julie Marath. I, I talk about her often. But so creating the space I knew was critical. And it started, it's now that program is what brought me to creative healthcare. That's kind of the. the short version of it, but we worked with it for 10 years and the founder of Creative Healthcare would come and observe and she'd say, organizations aren't going to pay for this. And by the late 90s, there was a lot of strain and stress in the healthcare industry. And she said, I think the pain is great enough that they're going to be willing to pay for a three-day curriculum specifically for all healthcare staff that allows them to think about why they're doing this work. What's the purpose and meaning of it? What does it mean to me as an individual? How do I take care of myself so that I have something to give to others? What does healthy teamwork look like? How do we commit to each other so we have each other's back in a way that we can then be there and have a safety net for our patients? And then, you know, the patient experience, we brought patients and families in on the second day to do an interactive afternoon with the participants, which was always extremely impactful because they came directly from them. Wow. Do you remember anything that just stands out in your mind that came up in this? I do. I have, there are quite a few, but one that I'll tell you because it links to how this evolved into the See Me as a Person book. In 19, probably 94, one of the patient participants was a woman with stage four breast cancer and was talking with us about what caring looked like to her and what it didn't look like. Mm. And she said what was most important for her was to be seen as a person. When she was not seen as a person, but rather a problem to be resolved, a room number, a diagnosis, she became a terrified. Yeah, a case. She became terrified and isolated. And her ability to cope was compromised. So you can see how I... That's powerful. And how that has continued to influence our work. There were many, many stories. And there, a patient who described losing a, a baby 25 years ago and being, after her loss, being admitted to the normal postpartum unit where mothers with babies were... And no one addressing the fact that she had lost a baby, acting mm -hmm. like she was just another patient, until a night nurse sat by her bedside and soothed her and sang her a lullaby. Mm -hmm. So that and the, the validation that something, this, this was really, that she was a human being who'd just gone through an incredible loss and that simple act was, she said, really life-sustaining for her. She was there in our workshop talking about this because she said for 25 years, her tears were as fresh as though it had happened yesterday. And that, mm -hmm. for the participants, that had a profound effect about how important it is for us to be attuned to the experience of the person needing care what is, you know, they, perhaps this group 25 years ago didn't know what to say. We've done a lot in the past years 
to learn about and how to support mothers experiencing loss. That perhaps they didn't know what to say, perhaps they, you know, just their routines dominated. Routines can get be a safe place to hide behind. Who knows what, but what was clear from the sharing of that story is that people's awareness was forever shifted. Mm. They could never, you know, I don't think they could ever lose what they learned in that moment from that patient with that story in that time. So that program is still alive and well. It's one, one of our signature programs at Creative Healthcare Management. We uh, prepare people and organizations to teach it. So it's spread. I think we've, there have been over 80,000 people through it at this point. And uh, we have 80 organizations that have licensed facilitators to hold this kind of, uh, it's called Reigniting the Spirit of Caring. I was just going to say, is it the reigniting? Yes. Okay. Because just how you described it sounded like that title. (laughs) And for organizations that are looking at cultural shift and, you know, expanding cultural awareness, this is like the opening. It's the unfreezing. It re. It reconnects people, it softens hearts and minds, and uh, has a lasting impact. Um, Obviously, the system has to evolve along. You don't just put somebody through this. We have, anyway, that was a precursor to my coming into the company. And then um, within about the first four years, I was given the, the role of looking at where the company was and how we could advance the work. And it became clear to me that we were doing a lot of work with teams, a lot of work with care delivery and professional nursing, leadership development, um, quality improvement, but that we didn't have it integrated in a way that organizations could understand it. So we began to think about how to put it into a comprehensive framework. And that framework evolved to be relationship-based care. And so that now is a framework that's used in a lot of healthcare organizations who are, and we have work that supports it, of course, to do cultural change um, and to um, many that are going for magnet designation will find our framework very helpful and are supportive. Them. And now what is that designation? That's a nursing excellence designation and okay. it requires organizations to meet particular high standards for care and service from a nursing perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I want to stress, however, that it was really important as the book, our first book was published in 2004, that this become an organization-wide endeavor. While the roots are in nursing, it is not a nursing model. It is a healthcare system model. And it's interprofessional in nature because only through interprofessional connection can we really provide the kind of service patients deserve. So um, we've really worked very diligently at expanding the interprofessional realm. And of course, bringing Michael in as my partner in the, see me as a person, not only was I brilliant in tapping into his masterful (laughs) understanding of human connection and what it takes to connect therapeutically. It also um, really made visible that we're we're in this as interprofessionals, not it's not only solo nursing, it's a silo we want to prevent from becoming entrenched. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Mary Colorudis on the impact attachment theory can have on healthcare. Part two will be published Tuesday, August 6th at noon Eastern. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training, opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Thank you.